Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Steve Levine for Hyper Brawl Tournament. That's a game that's out now for Apple Arcade. It's coming out soon for Steam, Xbox, and PlayStation. It's a 2v2 arena brawler, and the soundtrack will get an official release in the future, as you'll hear Steve explain. This is Steve's first game score, but he's been a composer and a record producer for decades, so we'll talk about his background and how all that unfolded throughout his career. Uh, but we start off talking about how he did end up being the composer in the first place for Hyper Brawl Tournament. My studio is located in the Baltic Creative Campus, and that's a new part of Liverpool dedicated to the creative industry. So in the whole area, we have a number of rehearsal studios, a couple of other recording studios, some video studios. For example, the studio next to me is a painting studio and they have tutorials to show you how to paint in particular ways with a voiceover and, and things like that. Mm. But also there's a company called Milky Tea that's located maybe 100 yards from my studio. And one of the interesting things that the area has, it's almost like the Paramount lot in California where there's a commissary and everyone eats in the same place. So there's a couple of big coffee shops here. And one particular day I was having uh, lunch and John Holmes from... Milky Tea said, I'd love to come and see your studio because we're working on a new project and I really think this will be right up your street. Of course, all of the tenants in this area have a, a, a knowledge of what everyone else does and certainly Mark Lawler, who's the sort of manager of the whole area, has always introduced everyone to everyone. So it's really mm. a fantastic facility. There's so many great opportunities. So, And he's very keen on encouraging cross-pollinization of different things. So so that was the first approach. And it was about, a, um, it was November of last year. So John said, look, we've got this new project. Could you do a demo of a piece that we're working on? So I did a demo and he was really, really pleased with the demo. And he said, great, we'd really love what you're doing. As we move forward, we'd love to commission you to do the music. Now, I've never done a game before, but I have done multiple soundtracks and television work. And so there's not a huge difference except for there is a set of rules. Now, the closest I can recall is a, a number of years ago in the UK, there was a famous drug brand or, or vitamin brand called Sonatogen. I don't think it's available in America, but they had these sort of vitamins and they wanted to have a cartoon-style drawing for the advert. And that's one of the first times where I've worked with both a director and an advertising company at such an early stage. So you start with literally a click track and a line drawing. And this was old-school animation where it was all drawn by hand and photographed on cells, no, no computer animation at all. And so you have strict rules about tempo and things like that. So that's probably the closest experience I had with regard to the the way a game works, because I'm sure everyone knows that plays games, you don't know how long somebody might be on a particular area. So the music has to be able to loop or concertina almost ad infinitum with not, without boredom setting in and, right. and also having some interesting sound along the way. Now, the consoles have become so powerful now that what is lovely as a record producer is I'm able to supply the production house with stems, which allows them a small amount of control over how the person playing the game perceives the audio. With stems, you're talking about breaking out 
parts or sections or maybe uh, instrument groups or, or something along yeah. those lines, separating the music out into parts, yeah? Yes, generally speaking, instrument groups. So, for example, I would have what I would call contemporary drums, so that would be a normal drum kit and anything related to that. Then I'd have perhaps orchestral percussion, which might have some unusual drums and tambourines and things. Then I'd have all the low-end stuff, any pulsing and things like that, and so on and so forth. Obviously, I worked very closely with the production house as to what they can handle. Generally, about between eight and ten stems works really well, and things like the sound effects or... As I call them the whiz bangs. You know, you have those on a separate uh, track, and those are different to their own sound effects. Different to the things like, for example, when the ball hits the wall or people run. Those, that's kind of more in the foley area, and they do that. But all the sort of things that might be accents that I put in the music, I put those on a separate track, and then I run the whole lot out in a, if you like, a stereo mix. So if you put the faders all at zero, the mix is as I intend it to be. But of course, if for some reason they needed to drop. I don't know, the whiz bangs or the low end out, they could do so and the rest of the mix would be exactly the same. So that's how I present it to them. In terms of compositional work, it varies depending on the stages that they were at with the game. So on some cases they had levels of the game that worked quite well, as in almost like a kind of pop video. I could see the characters move around and I got a sense of the tempo. On others there was just the drawings or the imagery or type of... Because um, I don't know if you're familiar with the game, but the game inhabits spaces and worlds. So one of the things I found really creative was that they would explain the world that the character was in. And that makes you, as a record producer, think, oh, I wonder what kind of sounds. And so very often it will be unusual things. So, for example, there was one where they wanted a sort of kind of like a sort of church, abbey, that sort of thing. And so I tried doing it with sound effects. Inter interestingly, I found on this, I did nearly all the sound effects myself rather than go to a library. It was quicker. I see a lot of television documentaries where they talk about how, you know, they do the sound effects for films and the foley. And it is often quicker just mm -hmm. to do it fresh for the particular job because by the time you search your library for 100 sounds, you can find what you need so quickly. Anyway, so... We'd recently moved to Liverpool, and, and for those that don't know how Liverpool is, a lot of the houses are Victorian, and so they have quite small gardens, but they have alleyways between the back of one set of houses and, and the next house. So we had some paving stones put into ours, and there were a couple left over. So I thought, I'm going to bring those into the studio, and I got some of those workman's gloves that are quite strong, and I, I literally rubbed the paving stones together with a microphone inches away and that to me created this sound of like gothic stones rising through the ground so that was um particularly good um another sound there's one where they wanted some bulls and there's a skateboard park quite near the studio so i was on the weekend when there was no one there i was able to um roll i bought are you familiar with that French sport, the balls, those silver things that they, they use in France? It's like, it's like uh, giant snooker balls or giant billiard balls. Anyway, I found a sports shop that had a set of them and I bought them. And they, So they're like big ball bearings, but they're metal. So I rolled those down the skateboard park and ran with a microphone really close to them. And you get this weird, brilliant effect of not only the Doppler effect of the ball rolling from left to right or front to back, but the sort of sound of it on the concrete. Again, a sound that by yeah. the time you manipulate it can be 
very exciting in the in the track and i use those sorts of things as enhancements in fact john came to listen to one particular mix a rough mix of something and just by the studio there's a construction site because this is a development area and this guy had uh, some rivets that he was putting in the girder and he was hammering the girder with a big sledgehammer but because the area is still under development there's a lot of flat surfaces so it was pinging all over the place and I said to John that's a great sound so I put I literally ran a microphone out the front door of the studio and waited for him to bang the rivets and it sort of went you know all across all the buildings and that is on one of the games I've managed to use it so so I tried to be creative as a record producer to deliver the sort of worlds that they want but on a musical level the game, if you look at the way the fonts are on the logo, it, logos, it has very much a sort of A to Z, otherworldly kind of, you know, a lot of sci-fi films, because of the, the scores by people like Van Gelis, created this world of, of synthesizers or Jean-Michel Jarre. Those, those have become almost de rigueur. Those are the way you have to sort of score things with arpeggiators and these particular synth sounds. And so that was something that... Um, John was very, very keen on, on, on show. you know, he said, I really like the, the sound of this or the feel I get when I listen to this particular track. And so record producer hat on, I distill down what I think they want and then you kind of create something. You go, well, how about this? Is this the sort of thing? Um, I think one of the most successful examples of that was... Um, he played me a track and he said, we really love the way the drums are on this. We love the feel of it. We like the tempo. And we really love the kind of sound the drums have. They're really, really sort of in your face. Now, of course, as yeah. a record producer, I instantly recognised what was being used on the record. And I thankfully still do have my Lindrum, my LM1. And so I programmed a part and I said, this sort of thing? And he said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we meant. So, so I think... <laughs> And you know what? That isn't any different to my day job as a record producer because when a band comes to see me, very often they'll say, this is the song or this is the song that we would like to record with you. These are some of the records that we love and we like that record because we love the vocal sound or we love the snare drum sound or we love the way that the mix does this or that. So very often a record producer's job is trying to understand what the hell the band is on about in terms of... <laughs> the sonic landscape that they want to inhabit. So so whether you're working with a band, solo artist, a games developer or a film director, the, the role doesn't really change. What you produce musically is slightly different, but the, the conversations are almost identical. I was curious how much they told you about what they uh, wanted sonically, and it sounds like they were pretty specific uh, with regards to that. But Steve, let's talk a little bit just briefly about your your background, because, uh, you know, you don't make your living as a composer, generally speaking. I mean, you definitely are a composer, and you've been composing for a long time, but I'm curious how that kind of developed alongside you as a producer. Were you a composer first, and then you became a producer? Were you a producer first? Uh... Well, actually... Exactly that. Oddly enough, the very first money that I earned outside of being a sound engineer was actually as a composer. So my first check and my first deal was signed to Rondor Music as a songwriter because 
what how that happened was I was a sound engineer and I used to work for CBS Studios in my as well in fact initially as a tape op because that was the job that that was around in those days. Then I started doing more and more freelance work as a sound engineer. But very often what would happen is the line between engineer, producer and writer was getting very very blurred. And okay. I then hooked up with a guy and he said to me my demos really don't sound very good and I can't really pitch them to anybody because they just don't sound very good and I'm sure I'm missing out on getting some covers. So, And he said, I've got a few songs that are not not finished. Maybe I'll, I'll sit with you and run through them. And I really liked him straight away. So we sat down and he played me a couple of songs and he had one song that was not completely finished but it had some ideas on it and in those days most home recording people used a tx4 track that was pretty much the sort of tools of the trade and he played me his track and i said you know what i've got a really good idea for this and i came up with some vocal ideas and i also said i've got a really good friend that i've been working with that was in a band the band have been dropped but he's got great vocal plus i've just worked with this girl group and I think the lead singer is really great and I don't think anything's going to happen with the group. Why don't we get both of those singers on this demo and I reckon we'll have a fantastic duet. And the reason we went for a duet, this was around the sort of mid-70s when there was a lot of those soulful duets around. Now, of course, I love Marvin and Tammy. Massive, massive love of that. So that was, I guess, in my mind, the template. However... Very specifically, there was a group called Champagne that just had a big hit with How About Us. And the producer had approached Rondor Music and said, we need a, a follow-up. Rondor played them our demo and they immediately went to record it. And so it was this weird thing that within a space of a few months, not only did I have a cover with Champagne... Ultimately, it wasn't released. In fact, here's the great happy, sad thing of the industry. So within that week, I had a, co a cover with them, plus I'd written another song with another friend of mine that the Three Degrees had cut and recorded. I had an acetate of it recorded. And then their manager threw his toys out the pram with the record company and so that same song was was recovered by another artist it was a medium hit in the uk but it would have been so much better if the three degrees had done it and and then the champagne song never got released as far as i know but what happened was because i had pretty much sort of two out of two rondor then wanted to signed me to a, a longer term deal and that was the start of my career as a songwriter Although very soon after that, what was happening was I was being called into the studio to help people with their demos because word had spread around town that Steve's pretty good at helping people, you know, create demos. So I would go to houses, smaller studios, and help them create these demos. And one particular artist, she had a manager that was a guy called Tony Gordon. He also managed a punk group of the day called the angelic upstarts and they needed a new record so they said well we'd really love to make a record with you they as always with punk they didn't have a very big budget so i used a small <laughs> studio we record we got on great i mean in fact not only did we get on great i spoke to menzi the lead singer a couple of days ago because in the uk there's this big thing with this thing called t-shirt day wear your band t-shirts to 
work and he had an angelic upstarts t-shirt and i said you know in all these years 30 something years i've never had one of those t-shirts and he literally sent me one the other day so <laughs> so i have finally got an angelic upstarts t-shirt anyway the good thing about the angelic upstarts as i mentioned tony gordon was their manager and tony said to me there's a band that i've seen i really would like you to take a look at them because they're very raw, but there's something. I feel there's something. And the band was Culture Club. And we went to a very tiny club in London's trendy West End off of Carnaby Street. And we saw the band. And I did some demos with the band. And the, those demos led to them getting a recording deal with Virgin. But it wasn't very quick. I'm condensing time here. It took ages <laughs> and ages. And in fact, every record company turned that band down. But anyway, wow. but, any, yeah. but luckily we did do a deal and we started recording and the first two songs bombed. But the third song was Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? And as they say, the rest is history. So... I have now a successful career as a record producer, so my songwriting pretty much went by the wayside other than the occasional songs that I wrote with George or the occasional songs with some of the other members of the band and some of the bands I worked with, but nothing of anything to really talk about because in those days, it was still the days of the seven-inch single. So as you know, the B-side was as valuable as the A-side and so I have written a lot of B-sides with the various <laughs> artists. But during that period... England was, you know, really ruling the waves, and London in particular. As you know, that was like the second coming of the sort of Brit explosion. So there were a lot of punk bands that missed the boat first time round. This, if you look at the UK timeline, you had all the bands like The Clash, and these were some of the bands that I was very fortunate enough to work with, but the timeline was moving rapidly. So bands like The Clash did adapt. And in fact, some of the, you know, my favourite Clash records, not ones I worked on, but some of the favourites of mine were in their later years. They, they really developed as a band. But some of the other bands fell by the wayside. But from those if you like, dying embers, new bands arose. So a good example is a band called Generation X, which were very successful originally in the UK, but nothing like they're successful now. I think Billy Idol has, has recreated this band that is much bigger today than it was at the time. However, from the embers of Generation X, two bands came. One was... Westworld, who I did work with, and the other one was Zig Zig Sputnik, who I didn't work with initially, but then did work with. And I'm still friendly with Tony James to this day. In fact, we had dinner last week. But Tony James was uh, the sort of leader of Zig Zig Sputnik. So Zig Zig Sputnik wanted me to do a very specific track. And one of the things that was exciting about that period was that it was the kind of the world of sampling had really taken off. Of course, everyone knows how it was in the 80s, but really by that time, I'd moved on to the Fairlight Series 3 and a lot of manipulation was possible. And that was part of the reason I got the gig with Zig Zig Sputnik. Now, at the time, Tony James was in a relationship with a UK television producer who's very, very well known in the UK. She's probably less known to the Americans, but she quite, was quite a big deal. And she came to the studio one evening and saw the equipment that I had and heard what I was doing for Tony. And she said, wow, this is the kind of sound that I'm looking for for a new television series that I've been commissioned to work on. And this was a series called Network 7 on ITV. It was a big deal show. So I did the music for that. And that really was the thing that started the ball rolling for my 
if you like, my compositional career, because from that, it was a very successful TV show in the UK. And from there, she then got some more commissions and she asked me to do some more work with them, which then led me to a very interesting time. So do you remember in the sort of, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, how the California world of films was beginning to change with the role of the music supervisor? It was that thing where you had the sort of John Hughes-type films. It was interesting. So one of John Hughes's PAs was actually an English girl who I'd known when she was still in London. And she phoned me and she said, look, um, and I'll give you the list of these tracks. Obviously, it's up to you how you use them and how you decide, but, but it is quite hilarious. So Tracy called me and she said, I wonder if you can help me, Steve. We've got this film, Trains, Planes and Automobiles, and it's finished, other than the last scene. Now, we want to use every... Time You Go Away, the Daryl Hall song. Every time you go away You take a piece of me with you But we've got a problem with it that... I don't know if you've seen the film. It's kind of hard to see it now, having seen it with my track in it, but essentially they dubbed in the Paul Young version, and it's the scene where they're walking along in, in the distance and the song Every Time You Go Away plays. They felt it, it sort of put a different meaning on the relationship that they had, and people were very sensitive 30 years ago or however many years ago it was. So Tracy said to me, look, would it be possible to, to do that song almost exactly the same, but with a female vocal, because we're working with a singer that we really love the vocal, and John Hughes really loves her as a singer, and she lives in, in England. She actually lives really near you. So here's where the problem lies. If you're familiar with the Paul Young song, one of the main riffs on it is an electric sitar playing the main riff. <laughs> Male to female vocal required a key change, but of course, changing it to fit the female vocal meant that you couldn't play those instruments to make them sound as they did on the record. So it was quite a task, I have to say, to make it sound sonically quite similar to the original. And bearing in mind, at this point, they'd already cut the, the footage, so it had to be the same tempo, all of the sonic dynamics had to be quite simple, similar. All the sonic dynamics had to be very, very similar because of the way the film was. We did have one advantage, of course, is because I was recording it fresh, I was able to give them some stems and a vocal version and an instrumental version, which meant they could actually start with a much longer intro before the vocal comes in to make it fit the footage even better. Anyway, John Hughes, God rest his soul, was very, very happy with what I did and, you know, said I was a genius for being able to pull it off and all the rest of it, which then meant I got a few more jobs. So there were things like She's Having a Baby, I did the title track of that. 
What's interesting about that was that's one of Elizabeth McGovern's first films. And I never met Elizabeth at the time, but I've worked with Elizabeth a couple of years ago when she did the voiceover on one of my radio shows, one that I, I'm very proud to say we won an award for. But I said to her, it was really sweet. You know, we had quite a lot of friends in common, but I said, isn't it amazing? We've never actually met until this point. But, you know, I did the song on this film. That, <laughs> it was just, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a funny old world, isn't it? It really, really is. Yeah. So, so that then led to... Uh, and, and also Culture Club's agent at the time in the States was Brian Laux. Now, Brian Laux is now an incredibly famous big deal movie mogul agent. But at the time, he was less of that. But he's a lovely guy. I love him to bits. And so Brian would keep getting me these little sort of bits and pieces to try and do, you know, a film here or a bit here. So... But the good thing about that is you have to work to a very tight brief. And that comes right back to what you said earlier with regard to the game. When you have great communication with your client, invariably you do a better job. Like I mentioned with She's Having a Baby, they were very specific about what they needed for the film. Dave Wakelin, who was from the English beat, had written the song and they needed something to fit in the film in a particular sonic style. So I sat with Dave and I sat with the producers and we came up with a track that suited the film. The same with Planes, Trains and Automobiles. They had a problem. The male vocal didn't fit with the film and they needed an alternative. And so every time you have good success with things, it's communication. That's, that's the thing that works. When you have problems, it's because... Party A expects one thing and you deliver something else and, and that's where never the twain they meet. You know, that's the problem. So all of that then leads you to eventually move to Liverpool. You're at the Baltic Creative Campus and you have this uh, just delightful encounter with the game developer. Yes. Did you have any hesitation at all when, when you were asked to do music and sound for a game? Uh, or was it just like, oh, I've, I've done a little bit of everything, let's add it to the list? Well, I was excited on different levels. First of all, they're a lovely company to work with. And I find that in Liverpool generally. It's a really great sort of... It's hard to describe. I've never worked in Nashville, but when I have friends that do work in Nashville, that's one of the things they love about Nashville. It's almost like a family... In a, it's like a business family, and I think Liverpool has that, where everyone is very friendly. I can get musicians literally like that. If I need a brass section in 10 minutes, I can get one, or whatever you need, and, and because there's a load of musicians in this area. And I would imagine for record producers in Nashville, it's a very, very similar thing. You want a pedal steel? There's one, you know, here I am, you know. So... I wasn't, there was no hesitation because I wanted to work with them. And as a record producer, I want to always expand the boundaries of what I do. And the descriptions of what they were saying they wanted was right up my street. In a way, the type of thing they were wanting was going right back to the beginnings of my career when synthesis, sampling and drum machines were very much the part of what I used with my record production in the 80s. And as you know, with the youngsters around today, the 80s are very trendy. Look at Stranger Things, you know, <laughs> the sonic palette of that is entirely culled from the 80s. So I think it's very fashionable at the moment. And I think that luckily, I still have a decent set of ears and I've got some of my gear originally from the 80s, but I also have a lot of modern re reincarnations of things that I couldn't afford at the time or things that were unreliable at the time. So my palette of sound that I have in this room is 
fantastic. I mentioned that I still have my Lin LM1 and my Roland CR78, but that's sitting right next door to brand new modular synthesis or any other new things. It, it, it's, a, yeah. it's a real playground, and that's the kind of sonic colours that, that the game developers, or, or indeed, in, in fact, modern bands, they want a really rich wealth of colour. They really do. So how much music did you end up writing for Hyperbrawl? Quite a lot of music, um, and in fact more than's currently being used at the moment, because the game was due to be launched in the middle of next year on the PlayStation and Xbox. However, as you know, they were approached by Apple, I think that's the right word. So Apple Arcade was launched a few months ago, and ahead of the launch, I believe they approached Milky Tea because they wanted to have some new exciting games. In fact, they wanted 100 games in their first week of release. And so John came to me and said, Steve, I've got some really great news, but I can't discuss it with you because I've signed an NDA. But can you finish this one, this one, and this one as soon as possible? So we worked on four arenas plus the menu and the leaderboard and really kind of focused on getting those finished. And those were delivered, first of all, to the game, although I have now delivered all of the remaining arenas. There's quite a number of them. Um, And so that will obviously be part and parcel of the Xbox and the uh, PlayStation versions. Plus, the exciting thing that's very trendy at the moment, which I am doing, and I have nearly finished, is e-gaming is very, very popular, as you know. And the other thing that seems to be also incredibly popular, this is where I find it fascinating... I mean, you probably find this fascinating in the jazz world, how vinyl is so incredibly important. The quality of vinyl produced today, I can honestly say, is superior to the vinyl produced in the 80s because record companies were making that vinyl thinner and thinner and thinner. So to have some of my great Dave Brubeck or my Miles Davis on 180 gram that doesn't wow is an enjoyable experience. But would you believe it? These youngsters that play games love vinyl. So what we're doing is, I know, they love that side by side with the game. So I'm currently finishing off the original soundtrack version, which means I can take the game arenas, extend them to longer versions. Generally speaking, the game audio that I deliver is around three minutes. That consists of a, um, an intro, a first bit, a main bit, a second bit, outro, and so on and so forth. But it's around about three minutes if you were to just play it from the beginning to the end. Of course, in the gameplay, it concertinas to however long you need it to be. But generally, the file is about that length, three to four minutes. But now I can sort of create these extended dance mixes like a like a 1980s 12-inch, which is what I've actually done. In fact, John came by with his team the other day to have a listen to them, and they were really blown away because I'm able to do these classic breakdowns that you'd have on a sort of Donna Summer 12-inch, you know, from 1980, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like you can go right down to kick, drum and bass for a few minutes, and then you can build in all the sounds. So that's being prepared at the moment for a vinyl hopefully a double vinyl release um, to coincide with with the release of the game because there is a demand for those as a sort of piece of merchandise or an artefact from the game. That's so incredible to me. I mean, especially having been a record producer for uh, a a 
time now. You've seen that vinyl thing come full circle. I mean, I, I was born in the 70s, so vinyl was still around in the 80s, but moving on to eight tracks and tapes and stuff. So yep. it's just so fascinating to see that it, it's like, to me, when I think about how youngsters these days are, you know, into wearing 80s clothes and stuff, I'm like, yeah, but that's not really an improvement. But when when they're getting into vinyl, you're like, yes, that's so much better than MP3s. Listen to vinyl, please. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm still a snob and I still believe that, um, or I'm an audio snob. Of course, the original 24-bit 96 file is, of course, the superior way to listen in the studio. But I'm fortunate. I've got a great recording studio. When I'm at home and I want to listen to a record, I do put on a piece of vinyl because I find that quite an enjoyable experience. Now, I know it's sonically not as good, but it's better than it was. If I want to listen to background music, I'll put Spotify or Apple Music on and I'll select a playlist. They're all different things. And what is absolutely wonderful today is the fact that you can choose the medium that you prefer and enjoy it however you want to enjoy it. I actually saw a guy the other day on the train with a Sony Discman. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> and a box of discs. Well, not a box of discs, like a sort of, like a vinyl pack of discs, you know, in, in like a zippy yeah. envelope. Yeah, you know, and it was a really big one as well. It was one from like the earliest incarnation. It was really quite big. I thought, well, good on you, mate. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Uh, so, Steve, overall, did you? I, it sounds like you had a really fun time making music for a game, having you know not done that before. Yes, I did, and I think that what is also really lovely is that the precision that's required is something that I think. I know we've sort of made jokes about it having an 80s retro feel, but the reality is the technology that's available today enables you to realise that in a way that you actually couldn't realise it 30 years ago. Or you could do the same thing and it would take you a whole day. It used to take me a whole day to spin the backing vocals in on one track. You can do that in five minutes now. And the other thing that's really, really great, there was one particular piece of music I presented to them which was for the trailer, which was a standalone piece of music. And the trailer was really interesting because that was much more like a pop video. And I learned quite a lot about how they render the characters and how they make it look like you can see them from behind and everything because essentially the game is flat. But Mm -hmm. I gave them a piece of music uh, which they liked, but then we all decided that the tempo was wrong. So we made an executive decision between us that we would speed the track up and... John persuaded the editors to just do a couple more cuts on the edit because we felt that although I'd done the tempo to the original brief and it had been cut to the original brief, it needed to be a different tempo. Now, that's the sort of thing that would have been horrendous even a few years ago. And so that made that job relatively easy because you could speed a few things up, you wanted to keep the pitch the same, and it became a creative journey rather than it being an absolute frustration so some of those things are much much better and then also one of the things that i've discovered making these extended versions which is also a real pleasure is the fact that you can automate so many great things for example i will give a massive plug to something that i love in the uad synthesizer collection they have the moog filter now Mm. that is better than any moog filter that i've actually used in hardware because you can automate the filter in such a precise way that I was able to create some very, very nice dynamic sonic moves by writing in the fader moves for either the filter, the resonance, or any other particular 
parameter. Normally, it's, mm -hmm. it's filter or resonance. Sometimes it's distortion. But generally speaking, you can create really lovely colours. So you can go from that sort of dull and it opens up and it builds and it builds and it builds. So that's something I used a lot. I really enjoyed using that. Also, of course, across the sound spectrum, many of the plugins were really satisfying. And again, because they wanted some of that sort of 80s flavour, originally in the 80s, if I was using, say, an Oberheim synth, I would almost certainly use the Roland Dimension D as the stereo chorus on it. Well, now that's available in a plugin, so that worked really well. <laughs> and also some of the stuff that they have, I've got tape delays, for example, physical tape delays, and they work really well. But again, when you need the precision in a game, you need to be able to have the tempo locked, the delay locked, and even the feedback of the delay locked to the tempo. That's something that's very hard to do with a physical piece of hardware. It's so much easier with a plug-in. And sonically, it really does sound very, very good. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, when I was an undergraduate in the mid-90s and I took an electronic music class and man, I wish I could do that all again because I loved it. But um, I remember learning about quantizing and being just blown away that you could just fix you just fix all the time. You just fix yeah. it. It's just like, well, that's amazing. <laughs> but isn't it amazing how the stuff you learn at school, sometimes you don't realise how important it is. Like, I went to a technical school and we did separate physics, maths and uh, chemistry and biology. Physics I was really, really keen on. And I did a separate electronics course. And I really enjoyed that at the time. But then by the time I sort of was, you know, graduating... Digital electronics had come through. And to be honest, I never learned that at school. So I didn't really, of course, I understood it, but I couldn't sit down and write code and build a circuit. Whereas, again, full circle, all these boutique pedal companies, all these boutique Eurorack companies, that kind of stuff is right up my street. It's soldering resistors, transistors and diodes on a piece of circuit board. I can do that, you know, which is so great. So in a way, it, that's a lovely thing. I find that incredibly fascinating. Now, I don't do all of it, but I certainly do one or two little bits and pieces. And I'm certainly pretty good at making up a cable if I need a cable. So, <laughs> so, but one of the things that fascinates me about what I learned at school, especially with synthesis, is we didn't have a synthesizer at school, but we did learn about sine waves and oscillators and stuff like that. And that's mm -hmm. something that still works really well when I've... So one of the things I do also is uh, Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, Paul McCartney's university in, in Liverpool, it's called LIPA for short. They have a sound technology course. And so some of those students come to me for Steve Levine masterclasses. And it's really fascinating because very often it's the simple things that they need to learn that really set them up for a future. And sometimes they can be incredibly simple things. And oddly enough, this is something where having a piece of hardware and a piece of software is really, really great. So for example, I can set something up on a DBX limiter that I've got hardware. I can set the same thing up in the UAD. It looks the same on screen. It kind of behaves almost identically. And that gives them an understanding of compression in a way that I... Obviously, I'd have loved to have had that in my day, but it gives them a great grasp of what it's actually doing. But more importantly, it's really important for them to learn about the gain structure, and that's something that people do overlook when they, when they have a lot of plugins. For example, you know, there's a few presets that I've got on some of my um, settings within the UAD card, and 
I try and emphasise to people, it's really, really important that that setting is taken in context because particularly compression setting, you don't know what your input gain structure is going to be like. And so it's very important that you have all of that stuff addressed. And so one, this is something that I try and do in my masterclasses, really show them how important that part of it can be. That That is where I get a little in the weeds I just uh, I'm I'm not as well versed in in all of those kinds of things, and so I'm so glad you brought that up. So here's the thing, right? In my job as a record producer, I think when people ask me what does a record producer do, there are so many different guises of what a record producer does. From at one end, a record producer who is just a great person, male or female, fun-loving. Almost, I use the example, almost like a maitre d'. They're able to sort of make the whole session go much, much better and things wouldn't happen if they weren't in the room. But those producers have possibly a lower level of technical understanding and in many cases a very low level of musical understanding. However, it is fair to say that without their presence in the room, things won't happen. And then moving slightly towards the more technical level, take the great producers like Joe Meek. It's well reported that Joe Meek really had very little musical ability, and I mean that in the nicest sense. But what he had was an enormous understanding of the technical process, and at a time when very few people did understand the technical process. So he was able to take a very small sound and turn it into something magnificent. And then you move up to somewhere in between, perhaps that's where I am, and then you move to the other end of the spectrum, to the great Sir George Martin or Quincy Jones, who have a phenomenal understanding of music, a phenomenal understanding. And so they can come at a record production in a slightly different way to perhaps somebody at the other end. I I think I probably fall in the middle. I've got a pretty good technical background, and over the years I've grasped a bit about you know, how you put things together. Um, But I think that what's really interesting about that is that having the understanding of the technical knowledge, especially with modern technology, is one of the greatest gifts I can give to my students or my artists because very often they'll buy a bunch of plugins and they really don't know how to use them properly. And there are, sadly, a lot of tutorials on YouTube and things like that being given by people that I wouldn't give the time of day to. I mean, these people are... I mean, they just... You can, you know the type I mean. They're just terrible. And by yeah. the time you've gone through 20 of them to find the one decent one, most people, especially the youngsters, have got such a low boredom threshold that they, they never get to the thing. You use the example of the weeds. I think it's very easy to fall in the weeds really, really quickly. It's a shame because there's so much noise out there on YouTube. You can't find the really good stuff. Yeah. That's why it's really important important that manufacturers have their own tutorials or their own endorsements with known producers and artists because that actually cuts to the chase more often than not people say to me steve i want to buy a new mic what do you use what do you recommend this is my budget in fact i had a drummer this afternoon said to me steve i want to buy a new mic pre for my drums and i gave him a couple of options and the same with plugins i say what are you using at the moment I need to do this or that, what do you recommend? They just need to get to the job really fast and then once they have a more limited selection of tools, they can be much better at it, if that makes sense.
Thanks for listening to episode 122 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about composer Steve Levine at patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc.